Let me ask you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we will continue our mini-series on the Trinity called Knowing the Triune God. This is part two of that series. Next week we'll look at part three and the final part of that series. In many ways, I'm just sort of bringing us to the edge of the ocean and dipping our toes into this. As a preacher, you always, and a teacher, you always know your inadequacy to explain the truths of God's word, but especially as you think about the, the person of God himself, it's quite overwhelming. So uh, we will trust the Lord's help in revealing the truth of his word to us this morning. Last week we talked about and, and asked the question of what it means to know God, and we saw that the answer to that question is that to know God is to be brought into the fellowship that has eternally existed between all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That to know God is not simply intellectual information. It's not a factual exercise to know God. We certainly know more about God, and that involves facts and information and doctrine But the reality is that before any of this existed, from all eternity, there has been one God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has been sharing a perfect and loving fellowship within himself. He created so that he would be able to share that, and he saves so that he would be able to share that specifically with all those whom he saves. To know God is inherently personal, not inherently factual. That does not, of course, dismiss facts. That does not make doctrine any less important. It just makes sure that doctrine isn't our God, but God is our God, and doctrine points us to our God. And so this morning, we then continue this series as we consider the question, now now that we know what it means to know God, we now consider the question, how can we know God? And we get the answer to that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, as we think this morning about the gloriously triune gospel. Follow along with me as I read, if you will, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. I was uh, telling Margaret and Darren there are, uh, I'm always aware that there are about 75 different Bible translations floating around out here. And I'm always trying to think about how to untangle all the interpretive yarn balls that are taken up. You know, and I'll just tell you, I can't do it all. Otherwise, we would never get through a passage. So there are different ways in which our Bibles read, but I would remind you to not get lost in the weeds, but zoom out and see the forest. So I'll I'll unravel some of those yarn balls and even tell you what I think is the right interpretation, but there's people smarter than me that think I'm wrong, so there you go. Either way, as we look at the wonderful and glorious truth that is unfolded for us in the triune God's activity of saving us, I think if we do so rightly, our hearts will be elevated in worship. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his Glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. God, take us now into the deep richness of who you are and what you have done for us from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Even as we read this passage, Lord, we confess it is weighty. It is stamped with your glory. I tremble even to attempt to explain its realities. And so we rejoice in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That when you left Jesus, you told us that it was good for you to go. Because your leaving meant the sending of the Holy Spirit, our teacher, our advocate, our helper. So Holy Spirit, we beseech you now to teach us the truth of the word. Not just to our minds, but to our very hearts. Stamp this upon our souls, O God. We pray that you would reveal the truth of who you are and what you've done for us in a way that would lead us to the right response, to praise, to the praise of your glorious grace. Grant that truth to anyone who needs to see it for the first time. And grant it continually to those of us who already enjoy it. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how often you think about the importance of specificity. How important is it 
to be specific. Aside from how fun and slightly dangerous it is to say specificity, just try it later, how often do we think about how essential, how vital specifics really are? We know this practically and by experience, for instance, in a small way, when you say to someone who might be helping you with a project, hey, could you bring me that thing over there? And they oblige you and they bring you the thing over there, but the thing they bring you is not the thing over there in which you were speaking of. And you say, well, thank you, but I was actually talking about that butter knife over there, not the dog. We understand the importance of specifics in small ways like that, but then we think about the importance of specifics when someone does something very kind for you, you, for instance. Perhaps someone has thrown you a surprise party or organized some kind of event to bless you in some way. And when that event happened, you were, of course, appreciative of it. You were overwhelmed by the kindness of that person to do that thing for you. But then if you are to discover all the planning and all the details and all the work that went on behind the scenes in order to make that event happen for you, what happens to your appreciation? It grows exponentially, doesn't it? As you realize the specifics that went into that event or that kind gesture toward you, you grow in your love and admiration for that person who has done that thing for you, right? Well, brothers and sisters, how much more, as we realize the specifics of the gospel, do we grow in our love and admiration for our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This is what Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 unfolds for us. The specific workings of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has eternally existed as one God in three persons, not three manifestations. How much more do we realize the greatness of the gift that we have in the gospel as we realize that that gift has come to us from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit? How much more are our hearts exalted in worship when we realize that if there was no triunity in God, there would be no gospel of God? If God had to make something in order to demonstrate his love, then by its very nature, that would make God be dependent upon the thing in which he made. Perish the thought, right? And so as we understand that, just as we thought about last week, that eternally, from all eternity, before time was even in existence and after time goes out of existence, there has been perfect love, perfect joy, perfect enjoyment, perfect communion in the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are brought into that privileged place. Identifying the specific persons of the Godhead responsible for our salvation leads us to more specific and even then greater worship of our triune God. 
And this is why we find the phrase three times in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, to the praise of his glorious grace. Meaning this is not some cold, dead doctrine. This is not some, these are not some lifeless words on a page. This is the living, breathing word of God, which if you know him, then exalts your heart to praise him. What could possibly make our hearts well up in praise more than to hear of how the triune God has blessed us in every way? How he has saved us completely, past, present, and future. How the Holy One himself has condescended to the unholy and pulled us out of the filth of our sin and snatched us from the clutches of death and gave us a future of glory when all we once had was a future of condemnation. How much more do our hearts exalt in praise to God when we realize that the fingerprints of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are everywhere on the believer's life before you even existed? Surely nothing can stir the Christian's heart to praise more than to hear again and again and again the old, old story of God's saving grace. And yet as we get to know God, we realize that this story satisfies our souls that much more deeply as we recognize the specific ways in which the triune God actually accomplishes his saving work. When we comprehend that our God is not some generic being called God, where we just sort of lump every action of God, every attribute of God within the category of God, not really knowing the specifics of those categories, but when we realize that our God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person within the one Godhead is essential and equally responsible for the saving of our very souls. And this is what we have as Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians. Normally, his practice is to begin by thanking God for them. But here, it's almost as if he just can't help but get straight to the point. To tell these folks that they are blessed beyond anything they could comprehend. They are blessed by God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are multiple ways, of course, that we could outline this passage as it points us to redemption, uh, as it points us to salvation, past, present, and future. But I think probably, or at least for our purposes this morning, the best way to outline this passage is to highlight what Paul most draws attention to, the work of the triune God. What the Father has done in our salvation, what the Son has done in our salvation, and what the Spirit has done in our salvation. And yet as we think about that, those categories are not so nicely chopped up for us. You'll notice that the persons of the Godhead sort of merge together in Paul's explanation of our salvation, and of course they do. 
because there is no division within the persons. They are not divided persons, yet they are distinct persons. Not separate in any way, fully united, fully one God in three distinct persons. So Paul highlights the working of those three distinct persons. And yet we understand that salvation can only be accomplished as it comes from the Father through the Son and is initiated and applied by the Holy Spirit. Remove any member of the Godhead and you no longer have a gospel. So then we see this played out for us. In verses 3 to 6, we'll see the Father initiates our salvation. We'll see in verses 7 to 12 that the Son accomplishes our salvation. And we'll see in verses 13 and 14 that the Spirit seals our salvation. So first of all, the Father initiates our salvation, verses 3 to 6. You'll notice in verse 3, already we have a merging of the three persons of the Godhead. Blessed be, or you could translate that praise to, the word means to be one who is worthy of blessing, one who is worthy of praise. And so it's not just a declaration that Paul's making, God is, God is blessed, but Paul is saying we bless God for who he is. We praise God for who he is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, you have the Father and the Son. God and Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, who has blessed us in Christ. The sphere in which we are blessed is in Christ, and this is why we pray in Jesus' name. Saying in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers is not actually necessary, and it's not an incantation to make sure you get what you're asking for. It's a reminder to us that the only way to approach the Father is through the Son. And yet, as a Christian, we are in the Son, and we have full and free access to the Father. And so the sphere in which we are blessed is in Christ. And then he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there we have the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Those spiritual blessings, where do they come from? From the Spirit. They are not simply blessings you can't see, but they are blessings whose, uh, who, who are, or which are mediated through the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts, for instance, the gift that the Holy Spirit gives to you in order to serve the body of Christ is from the Holy Spirit. Spiritual maturity, for instance, is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And so these spiritual blessings are that which pertain to the Holy Spirit himself. And so we have in verse 3 a sort of summary statement of everything we have in this one long Greek sentence that runs from verse 3 to verse 14. I know that because I read it in a commentary. There's no punctuation in Greek, and so they say, you know, we, they know where the sentences are. We'll ask Jesus when we get to heaven. But the reality is, Paul unfolds for us these glorious blessings that have come to us by the Father, through the Son, from the Holy Spirit. And so he says... Praise him. Praise him for what he's done for us because what else is there to do than to praise him? What 
possible response could be necessary and adequate other than to praise God for what he's done. He identifies the Godhead and each member within the Godhead and he praises God. But you'll notice that specifically as we run even throughout this whole section here, specifically the Father is really the main subject throughout. The Son and the Spirit come into play, of course, because the Father does all things through the Son and by the Spirit. But as the church fathers used to say, the Father is the fountainhead of the Godhead. There is, of course, no time order in the Godhead, in the Trinity, because he is eternal. Eternal means the absence of time. Not just no time, but the total absence of time. You can't pull time categories into timeless existence. And this is why we struggle to wrap our minds around God. Because the best we can do is understand who he is by what he has told us in the scriptures. And so the Father is the fountainhead, the church has always said. And the Son proceeds from the Father... And the Spirit is spirated from the Father and the Son, which is a fancy word for breathed out. This is the way that historically that the Orthodox, the faithful church, has always understood and explained the Trinity. And so what has he done for us? He's blessed us. So we have the word blessed in verse 3 at the beginning there, and then we come to the word blessed again, but it's a different kind of blessing. It's not that God has praised us But this blessing should be interpreted as God has bestowed upon us. It's what we normally think when we think of blessing. I'm blessed. I was blessed with a car or something like that. I was blessed with the flu or something like that. Nobody says that. So it's a gift of God. So this Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has given us in Christ, the sphere in which he has given us all things, What has he given us? Every spiritual blessing. Where are those spiritual blessings centrally located? Where do they originate? Where do they come from? The heavenly places. He has blessed us. Not he's going to bless us. But he has blessed us. With not some spiritual blessings. Not even most spiritual blessings. But every spiritual blessing. There's the word again. Every bestowment of the Holy Spirit that belongs in the heavenly places now belongs to the Christian in this earthly place. And isn't that exactly what we need in order to live in the world as lights of God? We need those blessings because in case you don't know already, life's hard. Not only is this world complicated by my own sin, but it's complicated by everyone else's sin. And not only is it complicated by my sin, everyone else's sin, but it's also complicated by the effects of the fall. The fact that I cannot get rid of those moles and gophers from my yard. The fact that those blackberries will not go away. 
And so life in a fallen world is hard, and yet God saves us not to take us out of that fallen world just yet, but to leave us in that fallen world so that we would recognize that the world is not the enemy, the world is the mission field. Somebody needs to preach that. And so in this fallen world, in the midst of the enemy camp that surrounds us, Psalm 27, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have everything you need to live for Christ Jesus because you live in Christ Jesus. Because the Father has bestowed these blessings and the Spirit mediates these blessings to you. And as we'll see, he never leaves you. That's enough to just send us home right now. But there's so much more. He, in verse 4, then begins to unload for us what these spiritual blessings are. Because you hear the word spiritual blessing, and immediately your mind grabs onto all the definitions that you have heard in your lifetime, all the experiences that you have had, all the bad TV shows or bad radio stations you've listened to, and you think about blessings like something bad. You've come to understand that there is a, a, a wicked, evil teaching that God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy and all of that nonsense. And so you know that's not right. But the problem that we can sometimes face when we reject what's not right is that we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. What are those spiritual blessings? Everything the Holy Spirit wants you to have. And really, this is what Paul will unfold throughout the entirety of the book of Ephesians. But he begins it in verse 4. And the first spiritual blessing that he highlights for us that comes from the Father is our election, or that he chose us. So verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. First spiritual blessing, you, Christian, have been chosen by the Father. The word even as is a comparative here. It, it highlights for us not something in addition to the spiritual blessings, but it highlights the content of the spiritual blessings. You have been chosen. Now, that word does not elicit quite so many arguments as the E word, election, but the sad reality is that there have been far too many fights about this in, amongst Christian circles, isn't it? Don't you go talking about God choosing. Don't you go talking about God electing. I have free will. I came to him. Well, yes, you did. But you came to him if he chose you. What, what Paul is doing here is peeling back the curtain on the reality of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so why in the world would anyone want to argue about that? Why would that make anyone mad? That the Father has eternally set his love upon you. Before you even existed, before the foundations of the world were laid, he chose you. And this is not God opening up the cosmic phone book and just sort of flipping through and putting his finger on a name and saying, okay, that one. The emphasis here in the context is that this is a 
supreme act of love from the Father. He chose us before the foundation of the world, which is another way to say from all eternity. Before anything existed, before time itself was in existence, God had chosen a people for himself. And specifically, who did that choosing? Paul says the Father did. Which I think then helps us to fix bad views of the phrase or the office of Father, doesn't it? It's a sad reality that many, 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 many people, everybody has an imperfect understanding of what a father is from an earthly father, but many, many, many people have a bad version of that floating around in their heads. For a long time, I personally, I knew God was my father, but based on my earthly father, I just thought, it's it's not really good news to me because those guys are not good. I hope to be a good one someday, but those guys are not good. And so what happens is sometimes we can take our experience that life throws at us and we can drag that onto the truth of the scripture, but in reality what we must do is realize that the truth of the scripture overarches and supersedes our experiences. And we have to unravel the realities of those experiences in order to see the beauty of the reality that God is a father. He's a father that, not, that does not stand over everyone wagging his finger. But he's a father that in love chooses his children. So he tells us about his action. He tells us about his timing. And then he tells us about his purpose. Why did he choose that we should be holy and blameless before him? and I'll just let the cat out of the bag, interpretively, there really shouldn't be a period there. It should be before him in love, period. Yarn ball unraveled. Why did the Father choose us? You see, the, the action of the Father here speaks more about the purpose than the action itself. What Paul wants us to focus on is not necessarily the fact that he chose us, though of course he highlights that, but he wants us to focus on why he chose us. He chose us that we should be holy, which is a complete contrast to who we are naturally, isn't it? And Paul's going to unpack that starting in chapter 2. Actually, by nature, we're not holy. We're dead and we're sinful. That's our nature. Did God know that when he chose us before the foundations of the world? Of course he did. Therefore, everything that has happened in the world must fit perfectly within the divine plan of God, even the fall. He chose us so that we would be holy, something completely contrary to what we are naturally, and to be blameless before him in love. In Colossians chapter 1 we are told that one day Jesus will present his people to the Father blameless. Can any of us actually say that we are blameless? In Christ, you can. 
because that's the purpose of the Father that he has accomplished in his Son by his Spirit. Now, we're not there yet to be perfectly blameless, but the reality is that your sin does not outweigh the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And one day, my friend, Jesus will present you to the Father and say, here they are, Father, my blameless people, the ones you have, you have given me. I present them to you. And we will sing and make melody and we will eat with the Lord at his table and we will enjoy his presence forever in perfect blamelessness with no sin. That's why he chose us. And all of these things then, of course, in love. What's the motivation for holiness? What's the motivation for blamelessness? Love. What's the great commandment? Love. And so love is the anchor to all of these things here. So the Father has chosen us, and then the Father has also predestined us, according to verses 5 and 6. And of course, these things are not necessarily separate, but he's specifically highlighting the work of God, the Father. Verse 5 says, he predestined us, or having predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It's even heavier when you realize the truth of it. To be predestined, of course, means to decide something beforehand. To be predetermined. The Father, Paul says, predestined or predetermined who he would choose before the foundations of the world. So he's using synonyms here, but he's taking us deeper into the glorious realities of the gospel. And again, it speaks not so much to the action, though of course it highlights the action. It speaks more to the purpose of the action. What did he predestine us for? What did the Father in eternity past, before there ever was time and before there ever was a creation, why did the Father choose a group of people so that he could adopt them as his own sons through his divine eternal son? That's why. So that God could have a family of people who do not deserve to be his family. And this is exactly what he says. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ occupies what part of the Trinity? Son. He is the Son of God by nature. That is his nature, the Son of God. And yet, what does Paul say here happens to every Christian? They become a son of God through Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ is by nature, the Christian becomes by grace. So of course you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're a son of God, Christian. And the word, of course, in in those days mingles in the idea of the daughters of God as well, but it's the sons who had firstborn rights. But you could easily just say sons and daughters of God because God does not put women in a lesser position in his kingdom. 
That's the purpose of God's predestinating action. So that he would have a family. So that as Hebrews 2 tells us, Jesus would have brothers and sisters. Why did he do this? That's the what of what he did. Why did he do this? He did this according to the purpose of his will, or really the the good pleasure of his will. Purpose is not the best word there, because it's cold and dead, isn't it? The word really is the good pleasure of his will. Why did God do it? Because he wanted to. That's why. And what God wants to do is, of course, inherently good Because God is inherently good. God doesn't begrudging or didn't begrudgingly say, I guess I'll choose some people. You know, my son's been bugging me about this for a while. I just better get it done. Oh, God the Father said, we've got so much love, we want to share it with more family. Let's make people. Let's save them. Let's bring them into an eternal existence of sinless perfection with us. God did it not because he was forced to do it. Not even because he needed to do it. God did it because he wanted to do it. The father is not the angry old man in the sky, constantly shaking his finger, looking to wipe everyone out. And the son is not the the nice one who just is always saying, Father, please don't. I know he's kind of slow, but just give him some time. The Father is equally loving as the Son. Who is the one responsible for these actions of choosing, electing, and predestinating? The Father. So when you sin, Christian, certainly we are in the discipline of God all the time, and God loves his children too much to let us continue in our sin, but that's not as if God is, you know, every time you sin, God's taking off his belt and getting it ready because he's coming for you, and the son's saying, no, 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 please hit me instead. No, the father is saying, my son, my daughter, I love you, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you grow because that's what you have been predestined to. That is your destiny. And all of this comes to us through Jesus Christ. And verse 6 says, the goal of all of this, why did he do it? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And there the beloved is just a synonym for the son, for Jesus the one whom we know God loves. The father speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism and he says, this, this is my beloved son. And now all those who are in the son have that very same love that the father has for the son, resting on them. He did it so that we would praise his glorious grace. Glory is a word that describes the sum total of 
who God is and what God does. The word carries the idea of weightiness. And so the best that we can do to sum up God is say he's glorious. We know that. But what aspect of God's glory does Paul highlight here? His grace. His grace shines with the Shekinah glory of God. And where do we see that grace most specifically and especially? In the work that he has accomplished through his son. You want to know about God's glory? Look at God's gospel. That's how you know about God's glory. The most glorious thing that God has ever done is save sinners. One day we will look upon that glory with unveiled face. And when we see Jesus, John says, we will be made like him. And so we have, first of all, the Father initiating our salvation. And then secondly, in verses 7 to 12, we have the Son accomplishing our salvation. We've already seen the Son come up, no pun intended, He's been mentioned because you can't mention the work of the Father without mentioning the work of the Son and without mentioning the work of the Holy Spirit. After all, if there were no Holy Spirit, there would be no Spirit-inspired scriptures. But here in verses 7 to 12, he specifically turns to sort of begin to highlight the work of the Son. And the first work of the Son, the accomplishment of our salvation, is highlighted in his redemption. In him, in the Son, in the Beloved, we have redemption through his blood. And then you have a synonym, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's in the Son, and it's only in the Son in which we have redemption. What is redemption? It is, in those days, what someone would pay in order to buy someone out of slavery. There was quite common in Rome and in the Roman Empire for there to be slaves. The majority of the Roman Empire, it's believed, were slaves. Much different than American slavery, but still slavery nonetheless. If someone were to be so gracious, usually a family member, but sometimes other people, if someone were to be so gracious as to change your fundamental identity from a slave to a freed man, they would buy your redemption. How did God change our fundamental identity from a sinner to a saint? He bought our redemption through the blood of his son. Without the shedding of blood, the scripture says there can be no forgiveness of sin. Sin brings death of necessity. Jesus came to die so that his people might have life. The son accomplishes our salvation. And the result of this redemption then, the result of this being bought out of slavery, which Paul is going to, again, in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to unfold the realities of that slavery even more. And there to say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. 
Paul is going to unfold for them the reality that they were once sons of disobedience, but now through the adoption of the father and the redemption of the son, they are sons of God. This then means total forgiveness of our trespasses. All those who have been redeemed through the blood of the Son, by the blood of the Son, because of the Son, have been completely and entirely forgiven of every misstep when it comes to God and His law. Every single one. It's unfathomable, isn't it? Everyone? Yeah, everyone. But I keep sitting. I know, God says. But it's all forgiven. It's taken care of. I'm not kicking you out of here because you're my son. You're my daughter. I think there would be a lot of appropriate places to do this. But let me just take a moment and speak to anyone here who might not be in Christ. I just want you to see what you could have you could have a completely clean slate before God. Completely. So that no charge against you would ever stick. Nothing could be brought against you. The the devil himself could not say, you know, you really should boot her out. Get rid of him. Because you would be a child of God. And God keeps those whom he has saved. So I would encourage you, by the command of God, repent of your sin and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How do we know? How do we know we have the forgiveness of sins? What about when I keep on sinning? What about when I don't feel like I've been forgiven of my sins? Does does God's forgiveness have a, a dial on it? It's on F at one point, but then as I live my life, it kind of drains down and eventually it hits E and that's sort of it for me? No, I know because his forgiveness is not based on me in my life. His forgiveness by his word says it's based according to the riches of his grace. How rich is God? Seriously, how rich is God? You can't put a number on it. How rich is his grace? You can't contain it. This is the grace in which he pours out upon you in his son. It's a grace we swim in all the time. It's a grace we certainly don't deserve, and and that's, of course, why it is grace itself. But it's grace nonetheless. And it's not as if God is in this fight between your sin and his grace. God's won already. Where your sin increased, God's grace abounded that much more. We know because God is rich in grace. 
And we receive that grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 8 then explains this grace he lavished upon us. He poured it out in overabundance upon us. It's an unending reality of God's grace. And so in verse 7 we have redemption in the Son. And verse 8 fleshes that out a little bit more until we get to this bit about wisdom and insight. Here, where Paul turns to make his focus on is the the wisdom and insight that God the Father has imparted through God the Son so that we would know God's plan for all that he has created. That's the summary to try to help understand all these intricate details here in these next couple of verses. He says, He lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And that's the point. He's made known the mystery of his will. What do you need in order to know the will of God? Well, number one, you need wisdom. Number two, you need insight. And a whole lot of help from the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says he's lavished it upon you. You have it. You know the mystery of the will of God. What is that mystery? Well, it's a mystery that according to his purpose, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the mystery of his will. That according to the good pleasure of God in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And every Christian knows that to be true by revelation of God. That speaks then to the purpose of life, doesn't it? Why are we here? To be a part of God's redeeming work. And we do that in various ways, through occupation, through family life, through our leisure activities. But the overarching and the overall point is not what we do in our lives, but the overarching point is what God is doing in his creation. And by his grace and by his glory, he is so powerful and so good that he works all the intricate details of our lives, the things we pursue, into the overarching plan that he has to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Simple, right? But this is his goal. This is his plan. Verse 11 then says, In him, Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, he brings up the same word, according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So now he speaks to about an inheritance that is received. But really, in verse 11, what's highlighted first of all, and and this is another translational yarn ball, but I think what it should say is not that we have obtained an inheritance, but that we have been obtained as the inheritance of God. 
Some of our translations get at that a little bit, and some of us have a footnote that specifies that. But that's what he's saying here. He's going to go on to talk about our inheritance, but right here, he wants us to know that according to the predetermined purpose of God, he chose people to be his family so that he himself would gain an inheritance. So God says in Christ to you, you're mine. You're mine. You're not going anywhere. And I'm not letting you go anywhere. You're mine. I love you. I don't care how you feel about it. You're mine. Who loves like that? I mean, we all have those relationships. We don't need to talk about them. We all have those relationships that are difficult. A friend or a family member has turned their back on us or hurt us in some particular way. And, and, and you know, maybe we still send Christmas cards to each other, maybe. But we just kind of generally avoid them because we like to put the problem underneath the rug, not deal with it. But that's not the way God loves. God's love is is a, a love that is a decided love. He doesn't give it and then pull it back. He doesn't give it at 100% and then say, ah, it's a, it's a 20% love day because you woke up late. You didn't do your Bible reading this morning. You got mad when the guy cut you off in traffic. I'm dropping the love meter. That's not how God loves. He loves completely, unflinchingly, and ceaselessly in Christ. So if you are in Christ, that is what you have. How do we know that God will accomplish this purpose? Well, it's according to the good pleasure of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How do we know? Because what God wants to happen will happen. That's how we know. Because if God says it, it'll come to pass. And then in verse 12, we have yet again the stated purpose of the goal. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We look at God and we just say, praise you. We live our lives and we praise him through the way in which we speak and we live and we talk and we engage our neighbors. And so we have the son who accomplishes our salvation. And then finally, I know you're hungry. I know it's really hot in here too, so your eyes are closing. I can see it. But I sympathize as a fellow sinner. My eyes are closing a little bit too. Thirdly, we have the Holy Spirit who seals our salvation. Verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. In him, in the Son, you also, as if that wasn't enough, Paul says, also, let me tell you something else that God has accomplished for you. When you heard the word of truth... What is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. And believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
You heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel, which is, which is the truth that Christians are committed to. We're not really necessarily committed to the general idea of truth as if we need to chase down every truth bunny, as if we need to assault every lie out there. We are concerned with the truth of the gospel because that's the truth that saves souls. And Paul says, when you heard that and when you believed it, at that very moment, God put his stamp on you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you think of those old letters and old, old scrolls where they close the letter and they put the little drop of wax on it and they stamp their insignia on it and it seals it. And if the king did it, for instance, then only the king or only the one who was intended to receive that letter could actually open it. This is God saying, you are my inheritance and I stamp you to prove it. You may have heard the gospel many, many times, but there was one time where you really heard the gospel. And when you really hear the gospel, you believe the gospel. Because this is the work of the Holy Spirit, to open your eyes. And so we know this salvation is secure because we have the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us. And verse 14 then says, Who is, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Harold Honer is pretty widely considered the sort of, he's passed away now several years ago, but probably the best Greek expert on the book of Ephesians. He translates this verse as, who is the initial installment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. If you've ever bought a house, then you understand that there is a point in time which you put an earnest deposit in. You put a payment down to show the seller that you're serious about your purchase. You're not just wasting their time. The Holy Spirit, God says, is the earnest deposit that he is serious about his purchase. He's given you that deposit of guarantee. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And you can't even mess it up. No one can take it from you. How good is it? What's the expiration date on it, sort of? How long does it last? Well, he says it lasts you right up until you acquire possession of the inheritance that God has promised to you. In other words, God sees you all the way into glory where you will no longer have to worry about sin. You will no longer need forgiveness because you will eternally exist in forgiveness, never sinning again. And so the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. Why? To the praise of his glory. There's no other response, is there? Here we have laid before us the specifics of how the holy God has accomplished the amazing work of redeeming an unholy people. God the Father initiates our salvation by election and predestination. God the Son accomplishes our salvation through the redemption that's in his blood. And God the Spirit seals our salvation so that we might make it all the way home to glory. 
This then leaves us and leads us into an eternal existence of praising God. Just as the doxology says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Praise is the only right response to you, Lord. Help us to do that very thing which you have made us to do, which you have saved us to do. Help us to do that very thing which we ultimately enjoy doing, praising you for all eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we'll take up our offering, so I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward, please. We'll also, in this time, have an opportunity to reflect upon the truths of God's word as we hear a little bit of music and we think about all the gifts that God has given to us. We give now in response to the gifts that he's given to us. Please pray with me. Again, Lord, we thank you for your gifts. We recognize you as the giver of all things. We understand that you have given us this understanding, this revelation, and we praise you for it. We pray, O God, that as we give now to you of our financial resources, you would help us to remember that you want a cheerful giver. You aren't concerned primarily with the amount that we give, but the attitude in which we give. So we pray, O God, that we would give in accordance with your grace that you have given to us. We pray that you would use these gifts then to further the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes and we see him again in Jesus' name. Amen.